There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome once again to Football Belongs. I'm Richard Bayless. Just a reminder, the podcast and chapter are different to each other, so we recommend you listen and read to get the full experience in whichever order suits you. For now, though, it's over to your host, David Davudovich. Thanks, Richard. We hope you've enjoyed the opening episodes of Football Belongs. It's been thoroughly enjoyable discussing this great nation of ours through a football lens. Joining us on today's podcast to discuss the Borders chapter, and I'm glad to say we have a few states covered, Craig Foster, the 419th Socceroo broadcaster and Logie winner, Indigenous refugee and multicultural advocate, Amnesty International ambassador, and sits on the Australian Multicultural Council, among other titles. And series inspiration, John Didelitzer, as always, alongside me. John made 27 NSL appearances starting in 1996 when he crossed the border to join Sydney United before returning to Victoria to sign with the Melbourne Knights. A lawyer, he served as FFA legal counsel, Melbourne City football director and chief executive of the Australian Players Union and now CEO of W Sports and Media. Now, boys, I couldn't think of a more appropriate time to be discussing borders and the two games you have focused on in this chapter, John Diddle, it's the National Soccer League clash of round 25, 1977, between Morrill Bark and Brisbane Lions, and the Pascoe Vale Bentley Greens match in the second round of the 2019 Victorian NPL season. John, why have you chosen these two games to tackle borders? Look, they're certainly not the first two games that jump off people's tongues when they're discussing the history of Australian football, that's for sure. But what I felt that they did was really articulate the nuances and power of football in this country. If you look at today's newspapers, they're focused on two key issues. One of those is the rights of asylum seekers. After more than a year stuck in a hotel in Melbourne's northern suburbs, this trip outside was under heavy police escort. The 60 men had been detained in the Preston Hotel since being brought to Australia under the now-defunct Medivac laws. Lines of police were mobilised to keep at bay the dozens of protesters who had gathered in support of the refugees. The second one is the restriction of movement between states in our country, and that's something that's been exposed uh, through COVID. Travellers are tonight scrambling to beat the clock in a desperate race to return to Victoria before the border with New South Wales closes at midnight. Good evening. Sydney has been shut out of Queensland in an extraordinary decision by Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk on the eve of their election. A mini-migration is taking place as thousands of Queenslanders stream home across the border. At 1am, the state goes into a hard lockdown. WA is about to become an island within an island. The Premier today announcing a hard border closure that he says will keep almost all visitors out of our state. Billionaire miner Clive Palmer has lost his High Court challenge to Western Australia's hard border. The mining magnate had argued the restrictions breached the Constitution. These issues are not new. They've been consistent threads through the history of the nation. Uh, if we go to the Federation of Australia in 1901, what effectively brought each of the states together was a joint mission about how they would treat the national borders. And the first, or one of the first at least, acts of legislation that was passed by the newly formed Commonwealth Government was the White Australia policy. So that really set the scene for how we'd manage our external borders. And there's some irony, or not, not even irony, but there's some perverse perversity to the fact that the only thing that got the states together in the first instance was how we would protect against or who we'd exclude from our nation. Um, so I think the 
Hakeem story that comes out of the Bentley Greens versus Pasco Vale match speaks loudly to what we as Australians need to do, what we needed to do, what football could do in order to break down those international borders. And the Murrabark versus um, Brisbane game speaks to the difficulties of bringing the states together under singular themes. And I'm looking forward to discussing those uh, games throughout the podcast. Craig Foster uh, introduced you before you really need no introduction, but uh, wanted to get your views on or y- your reflections uh, uh, of that Pasco Vale uh, game moment, uh, which was, I guess it felt feels like a lifetime ago now. Oh, it does. Uh, it was a pretty intense time uh, back in late uh, uh, 2019 and uh, uh, 2018, early 2019. Um, it's actually early 2019. There you go. Early 2019, yeah. Yeah, so it was a, a very intense time back in early 2019, late 2018, you know, when everyone was stepping forward for Hakeem. Of course, he was a refugee, so it goes very much to the heart of how we see ourselves as Australians and our place in the world. And in my view, and, uh, you know, I've said many times publicly that they're two of the big issues that we see. You know, constantly, uh, you know, you have the Prime Minister of Australia talking about, oh, we're not going to be told what to do by these globalist forces. And, you know, the, the people at the UN shouldn't be guiding what Australia does. And there's always this sense to play to the lowest common denominator, which goes way back to the start of uh, federation and really the start formally of the country that is uh, this you know sense of very much being an island you know and that uh, it's all about who's allowed here who should be here who fits in here and that means you know who shouldn't be here who should be excluded and of course refugees asylum seekers and people like Hakim Al-Arabi are right at the heart of that argument. So at the start of that campaign, Foz. I mean, in term from an Australian context, I mean, you you, you talked to you, you mentioned uh, you know some of those, I guess, challenges and uh, how we want to be perceived. But can you just talk us through, I guess, your mindset and how the campaign unfolded? Well, very few industries, very few organisations, very few uh, cultures, very few groups, whatever we want to call football. Uh, Football's almost unique, in my view, in having the sensibilities and the cultural understanding and context to be able to run that campaign for that particular person. And that is because he's Bahra- he was Bahraini, uh, he was a refugee, uh, and he'd got himself in trouble. He was on a protection visa. And, and thirdly, uh, he's Muslim. Hakim Al-Arabi, he's a Bahraini footballer. He holds refugee status in Australia, but since November, he's been in jail in Thailand. His story starts in 2014. Back then, he fled Bahrain after he'd been convicted of vandalising a police station. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison in absentia. He denies those charges. And since then, he's been living in Australia, where he'd been granted asylum. But in November, he decided to leave Australia temporarily. He went on honeymoon to Thailand and was arrested at Bangkok Airport under an extradition warrant. And immediately when it happened... They were the first three things that my mind went to. The, this poor kid has at least three elements uh, of his makeup that put him in a position where Australia historically, but particularly right now, when the Muslim community in Australia is still being demonised and attacked, particularly in recent years. Ugly scenes in Australia as anti-Islam and anti-racism demonstrators clash. There have been injuries and arrests in Melbourne. The venue with most violence on a nationwide day of protest by the Reclaim Australia group, which denounces what it sees as the Islamisation of the country. Where Muslim Australia feels marginalised and, you know, largely unwelcome. That's what the research says from the Scanlon Foundation, the Social Cohesion uh, Index that comes out every year. Uh, and uh, thirdly, of course, he was a refugee, you know, on a protection visa and refugees and asylum seekers, people who many Australians have been led to say um, uh, jumped the queue, such as it is, and there actually isn't one. But, you know, this all, all feeds into this concept of who should be here and who shouldn't be here. 
And, uh, you know, I see it very much as an island mentality. And uh, it's it's an extraordinary island. It's a wonderful island and so much going for us. But, you know, being so isolated, uh, it does, it has, I think, contributed to this culture of in and out. And it's very easy for particularly the popular media here, uh, which has a very high concentration, you know, as we know, uh, to be able to demonise any particular group as being in the outside. And we're in... And these people are wrong. And that's been the history of Australia. They're wrong because they don't look right. They're wrong because they came under the wrong circumstances. They're wrong because um, they're not going to add anything to the country. They're wrong because they're going to take our jobs. Uh, you know, and so all of these themes, because of our history, going back to 1901, are very easy to weave into the public consciousness. So being an asylum seeker and refugee advocate at the moment, simply because it's needed, um, and coming from football where I see this concept of shared humanity, of the global family that we talk about in football all the time, and, and this concept of the beauty of difference, uh, but not as an exclusionary factor, um, you know, I see it a lot. I see that how those messages are able to put Australians back in a position where they feel fear, fearful uh, of people who are either arriving or who are seen to be trying to arrive. There's a wonderful documentary in the film National uh, Film and Sound Archives. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Admission Impossible. It was uh, it was released in 1992. And it goes right back through the first immigration policy, the white Australia policy, the white, you know, pure white um, uh, immigrants and, and particularly uh, British people were uh, preferred over anyone else. It goes all through all of this, you know, deeply racist policy. Australia, the great sunny continent of the southern seas, over 30 times the size of Great Britain, yet with a population of less than that of London. 98% are of British stock. A bright, young country with lots to live for. We welcome you to share its great future. Not everyone was welcome to Australia's sunny shores. The invitation to come down under was extended only to those who were British and white. And I would recommend everyone to watch it Admission Impossible. Yeah, I think Foz... <coughs> The default position is, as you've outlined, it's always been to exclude and that there's a lot of commentary that sits around that in the history, but there's been moments throughout Australian history that have been punctuated by acts of great generosity Mm -hmm. and almost irrational generosity from our leaders. And it goes back, some of the research I did goes back as far as 1881. Sir Henry Parks was the governor of New South Wales at the time. There was a boatload of Italians who... 200 had died in the journey across. They, their boat sank at sea. They sent out the Australian Navy, saved these Italians, relocate, resettled them in New South Wales. And now there's a place called Little Italy that's still there now. And it's a mm. part of the, the state heritage. It's a, it's a premises of, of state significance. It's a historical landmark now where these Italians settled. And at the time, the difference there was the Protestant Australian culture and these Italians were Roman Catholic. So it wasn't an easy thing for Henry Parks to do at the time, but he chose to do it and he saved these Italians who have gone on to make this enormous contribution to life in New South Wales. You know, you get fast forward to Malcolm Fraser in the seventies mm. post the Vietnam war when he, you know, opened the borders to so many Vietnamese who were flooding into Darwin and looked after them. It wasn't just about processing them. He made a proactive step as the prime minister to lead in that regard. Almost 56,000 Vietnamese refugees made the journey between 1975 and 82, a watershed moment for Australian multiculturalism under Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser. The White Australia policy had ended just two years earlier. The first of the new arrivals were taken to the Endeavour Migrant Centre in South Kuji. More than 2,000 refugees arrived by boat. Uh, Bob Hawke did a similar thing. Uh, post Tiananmen Square, we granted residency to any Chinese student who was sitting in Australia, who was living in Australia at the time. Even John Howard, uh, with the Kosovars post the Balkan War, took great steps to welcome the Kosovars here and, and try and give them a new life in Australia. And there's, so there's been these great moments of generosity that have shown us to be an incredibly um, embracing nation when we choose to be. 
And I saw that similar dynamic play out in the Hakeem case, that he was a moment that for some reason, and you can unpack this a lot more effectively than I can, that Australians came together behind a cause to do the right thing. And And every time we've done the right thing, we're better for it. And I think with Hakeem, we are too. And I'll just reference that chapter in the book you wrote, John Diddle, in the chapter rather, uh, John Diddle. It's a how Foster and the story of Hakeem broke down international borders and challenged Australia's attitudes to those borders to harness the collective will of a disparate group to overcome a metaphorical 3-0 deficit with minutes to play is a case study in the Australia we think we want to be but rarely are. Yeah, because I think we pride ourselves on those great moments of charity. I mean, as Australians, that's how we... We tend to wish to define ourselves. That's the Australia we, I think we want to be, but rarely are. So I'd love, Foz, for you to be able to speak to how you were able to galvanise all these different groups behind Hakeem with that backdrop. And I'll, I'll add to that is the more recent history you, you touched on is if you go only back as far as 2001, we had the Tampa situation where we were happy to let 433 people effectively drown right. at sea and and... and threatened to prosecute the captain of the Norwegian ship that saved them. Uh, we, we'd moved the, we moved the nomenclature from asylum seeker to queue jumper to illegal to terrorist in a very short space of time post-September yep. 11. So the, the commentary that sat around people wishing to come to Australia was so corrosive. It was so divisive. Yet what we saw in the Hakim campaign was entirely the opposite to that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And so that whole Tampa situation occurred, you know, also around within the context of uh, September 11. National security is therefore about a proper response to terrorism. It's also about having a far-sighted, strong, well-thought-out defence policy. It is also about having an uncompromising view about the fundamental right of this country to protect its borders. It's about this nation saying to the world, we are a generous, open-hearted people, taking more refugees on a per capita basis than any nation except Canada. We have a proud record of welcoming people from 140 different nations. But we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. And there was this utilisation of that moment to demonise, you know, anyone who was, you know, could in any way culturally or religiously be associated with those, you know, heinous acts. And therefore, uh, and it was used, it was used publicly. There's been an incredible PR campaign run on, uh, you know, the asylum seekers who've tried to come, you know, via boat uh, and who have been uh, stuck on Manus Island. There's still 300 offshore and there's 200 here onshore now. And And one of the challenges that we have is that I think this underlying sense of, um, sense of entitlement as to who should be here or who should be able to come to join us, um, is always bubbling beneath the surface and politicians can trigger it, uh, whether through fear or, you know, fear of security. Uh, securitization of these asylum seekers has been incredible in the last 10 years. Uh, now it's all, rather than about immigration, it's all now about border security in inverted commas, uh, or about fear of losing jobs, which is, you know, obviously ridiculous. It doesn't need to have, it doesn't need to make sense. It doesn't need to be logical. It goes to, you know, the real heart of people's fear of people coming. And once again, admission impossible goes into the time back, I think in the seventies when, the government um, started to talk about the yellow peril and the Asian horde coming down from the above. The Red Menace predated right. that. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so these themes have just been woven into our public consciousness and they have to be battled against. And that's kind of what I do today. So for Hakeem, you know, he had some of the uh, qualities that I was fearful would put him in a position that Australia was not going to be prepared to step up for him. I've got to say he had some advantages, though. Number one is that he played sport, and you know, we are clearly in a, in a sports-loving nation. Secondly, he was already here, uh, and therefore he didn't come by boat, he came by plane. And, and again, you know, when you try to explain to Australians that 
Hakim knew the laws because he had friends who had, were also Bahraini refugees, also who'd been uh, tortured, and they told him, when you come in by plane and they ask you at the border, um, are you here to seek asylum, say no. Once you get in, you know, go and live with your friend for a while, then put in your application through a, a local lawyer for asylum, get a protection visa and everything's A-OK. That's actually the only difference that we're talking about. It's quite extraordinary that the people who come and, and are granted protection are actually the ones who are forced to lie at the border. That's, that's the reality of the law. Uh, and so Hakim had been granted protection as well. He had a story about torture, which had been made public. And I think that, you know, we could use that story to trigger some public sympathy. <laughs> Rightly so. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying cynically, you know, the mm. kid was tortured, right? Yeah. But again, that's, that's a part that, you know, we needed to really play up and make sure that the public knew. Sec uh, fourthly, he had a young wife. And he wanted to, to build a family. So in other words, there was a whole number of triggers that kind of 20 years in the media, that training was really important to being able to build a narrative for him to avoid him getting in the same situation as other asylum seekers and refugees and or immigrants, many of whom have built our game. Let me give you the opposite um, argument. So what I'm saying now about the other asylum seekers and refugees who are still offshore or 200 are in hotels in Australia, in our cities, um, including in uh, Park Hotel in Carlton, right in the heart of Melbourne City, and people are walking past them now, they're in their eighth year. The difference is that we also had really uh, convenient villains. We had the Bahrain royal family. Okay, so Bahrain, you know, Middle East, and so, you know, you're kind of, that's playing into this whole theme around many of the asylum seekers to come in recent years. And secondly, Thailand, okay, um, you know, is a, is a smaller country, is less politically powerful, both within the region and globally. That was also important with FIFA. Uh, and so we had some, and we had these royal families, and you had a military junta, you had a general who was the prime minister of Thailand, okay? So we were able to paint these villains as, you know, trying to, what exactly what they're doing was stealing the life of this young family. Whereas when it comes to the other asylum seekers and refugees who have equally the same rights to Hakim, we're actually the villain. And that's what makes it so difficult because we're having to talk to Australia about the very essence of our immigration history, right? The way that we've treated people who've come into the country and it's a it's an incredibly difficult discussion to have. Yeah, and one of the one of the huge ironies to that Foz is one of the earlier podcasts we discussed the the great way that football allowed the lubrication of incoming communities, and these football clubs acted as almost uh, service providers. So nowadays you might have a government agency who acts as a facilitator into the Australian way of life for thirty years after World War Two service was performed by football clubs. It's really interesting now that we've almost moved away from the community actually acting as a, a vehicle to allow these groups to assimilate, but are actually pushing back against their assimilation. Different communities find different ways to integrate. Okay. And that means, you know, that word's important because it's about maintaining your own culture. Uh, but now integrating within Australian society as well and joining the two together. And coming from football, it's something I often say to people is a great gift for us and it's something that we intuitively understand. That's why I say that I'm an Aussie wog. Right, so you talked about Little Italy. There's, there's a Little Italy, uh, the one I think you're talking about, is up in far north coast of New South Wales. Yeah, that's right. That's where I'm from, yep. right? Yep. Uh, and so, you know, I'm from Lismore. And so just, just not too far away, a few kilometres away, we had this wonderful Italian village, really, uh, but, you know, Lismore in those years, in the early 70s, early to late 70s, was, um, you know, far less multicultural than it is today. And so football gives us this incredible mix of cultures and we come to associate, integrate and befriend and understand, I think, uh, you know, every culture from around the world. And that's why the game has been so important for Australia. And so as someone who's both sides of the family came off the boats, you know, in 1788 or, or shortly thereafter, um, it's given me a, a sense of 
um, you know, a global view. It's given me an opportunity to understand, you know, your, your shared Croatian culture, uh, you know, and the Maltese at Sunshine George Cross and, you know, and the Greeks at South Melbourne and, and Olympic. And all of these issues, all of this uh, context is so important when, when we see the game stepping forward and advocating for someone like Hakeem, yeah. because it's intuitive to us. Of course, we're going to advocate for him because we play against Bahrain. Like how many sports in Australia play against Bahrain, <laughs> you know, in a meaningful way? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know any others. So we play against them in the Asian Cup. We play against them in, in major tournaments or throughout qualification. Our first game in Asia was against Bahrain in 2006. There you go. So for us, it's perfectly natural. We play them on the field. As I always say, we shake hands. We have the respect banner. And then what happens, you know, they're fleeing uh, persecution, seeking asylum here. And I say to people, and then we draw, we draw up, you know, the drawbridge and say, well, sorry, no, we're respectful and we're brothers and sisters on the football field uh, and we're all equal, uh, but we're not that equal. And that, in my view, is what we really need to break down in Australia, overcome and uh, in order to create, as you said, the Australia and, and later the world that we wish to see. Now, immigration um, quotas and immigration policy is, of course, important, um, but it can't be used to demonise people, to put whole communities in positions where they are racially abused, you know, day after day, and where they're demonised over large periods of time, which many of our football communities, including the Southern European and Balkan immigrants, were. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, let's take it to the other game that John touches on in this chapter, Moralbark versus Brisbane Lions in the inaugural NSL season of 1977. Now, without Moralbark, uh, this competition may not have started. In fact, almost certainly would not have started. It, it was trailblazing ahead of its time, well ahead of the AFL uh, going national some uh, 10 or 13 years later, and also the NRL uh, even further down the track, which John touches on in the chapter. I wanted to throw it to you, John Didlitzer, why you chose or j- just to expand on uh, on this match from a border perspective. Yeah, I think it's the anonymity of that game that spoke to me. Uh, and nobody other than the probably 450 people who were at that match might even have a passing remembrance of that game, probably only the players, to be honest. But what Murubak did was entirely in line with the way we saw Australia's original act of federation. So what, you know, the reason Australia federated in 1901 was arguably twofold. One was to give ourselves a more effective platform on the global stage. And the second was to build our economic pie. Those same themes resonated with the National Soccer League. And that's why I think it became the first Australian national competition we just competed at the 1974 World Cup, and, and Johnny Warren talks about this really well in his memoirs, is we've got, we'd gone to Germany, we had meticulous preparation, we had a golden generation of players, yet we couldn't win. We didn't score a goal from memory. David Foz might um, stand to be corrected, but we had a nil-all draw was our only result from the tournament. And Johnny came back scratching his head asking, why couldn't we compete with these nations, notwithstanding our impeccable preparation and our high quality team and his answer was the quality of competition at a domestic level we needed to unite nationally in order to compete internationally and that was very much the the ethos of the early pioneers of federation the other part that resonated with me was the difficulty in actually making it happen so if you look at some of the early federation stuff the conversation started decades earlier probably in the late 1880s and early 1890s, it gathered speed. But by 1893, it was dead in the water as a concept. And the same with the National Soccer League. It started, and we'll talk about Frank Lowy, I think at some point, but Frank had this business vision, okay, let's grow the economic pie. We can do that by joining 
um, forces with you know cheaper airlines now, with colour TV, with mass media now starting to penetrate industry, we could actually start growing this huge economic engine to support the sport. But they both hit roadblocks. They weren't able to get the necessary traction across the nation to move forward. And it was very much based on state lines. The inability to get people to work together because of these arbitrary borders that had been um, set a century earlier in both cases. And what broke the deadlock in each situation was this small, seemingly insignificant little group of people. In the case of the Federation, it was the people of Korowa. They were being immediately impacted upon by this failure to regulate the borders effectively. They were on the border of New South Wales and Victoria, so they had huge complexity in actually managing their economy. As a consequence, once all the political stuff had failed, broken down, they took it upon themselves to have a grassroots forum to try and kickstart the Federation discussions. Equally, fast forward 100 years, or the best part of 100 years to the formation of the NSL in the late 1970s, the same thing happened. You'd had all these people having discussions and Victoria opting out. Victoria said, we will not be a part of this national competition for reasons of history. There'd been some bad blood. There'd been some inequity in some of the previous commercial dealings when, you know, Australian soccer was kicked out of FIFA and the like, but there needed to be a circuit breaker. The same way Korowa, this small little town of 11,000 people, provided a circuit breaker in the late, in the early 1890s, Murrubark provided a circuit breaker to the creation of the National Soccer League. And that circuit breaker was agreeing to join. So at the time, the Victorian clubs had a group who en masse resisted joining the NSL. Murrubark broke ranks and joined. As a consequence of Murrubark joining, the other teams were forced to join. Because with Murrubark, at least the competition had credibility as a national league. In the absence of Victoria, clearly that wasn't to be the case. And we all know how much Victorians love themselves as the sporting capital of not only Australia, but the entire you know, Milky Way system. So it would have rung incredibly hollow not to have a national competition without Victoria. Murrubuck broke that trend and the, the president of South Melbourne at the time is quoted as having said, now that Murrubuck's joined, we're all in. And that broke that trigger. And Les Murray wrote a great piece on this when the A-League was being formed or just shortly thereafter about how that act was, um, he described Murrubark as Galahad on a white horse and the but for Murrubark than NSL uh, would never have happened. And so in, in, in a similar way, uh, without Korowa, the Australian Federation may not have happened in the same, in the same way that it did. Murrubark, for reference, averaged about 800 people per game they played their home games, I think, at four different venues across the year. Esther Reserve, where they played the game against Brisbane here, which was their last home game of the season, is the best part of 40 kilometres away from Melbourne CBD. So if you were going to do a, you know, a, a FFA-esque metrics assessment of whether or not Moorbark were a good fit for a commercial model of a new NSL, they really wouldn't have ticked too many boxes, David. So, fish where um, the fish are. Fish where the fish are, mate. So... For them to take that leap was a great, in some ways, an act of self-sacrifice. It could have been an, an act of ego. Who knows what motivated it? But ultimately, but for them, the league doesn't happen. So that game, as anonymous as it is, is symbolic of what it took to give birth to the first ever National Soccer League. As uh, you reference in the book, 10-3 loss that season for Moral They've Bar got Fish. a host of records. They have an absolute <laughs> host of records that are still active to this day. They lost to Adelaide City 10-3. <laughs> Extraordinary. <laughs> you know? Foz, I'm not sure what your recollections are of that game or that inaugural uh, NSL season, for that matter. But my think calculations, I don't think you're about, that old, Foz. You're about uh, eight, <laughs> eight years old, but uh, for, I don't know. Uh, I got grey hair. I mean, <laughs> yeah. But uh, look, for the stats, I, just yeah. quickly for the stats, boffins out there, it was a one nil win to Brisbane Lions with John o, John Neal scoring uh, the winner, and uh, one Les Scheinflug uh, was the coach of Brisbane Lions that day. And John, you do refer to him. Uh, in the book, but uh, Foz just wanted to get your views on uh, on that match and the significance of it. So, if there was one sport in the country that was going to take an international and a cross-border approach, it had to be football, right? 
And so look at all the Austrian players that come in, um, you know, Baumgartner and all these players, you know, back in uh, the 60s. Look at, you know, people like Les Murray who came in, you know, Hungarian refugee. Good evening, buonasera, welcome to the World Game. Good evening, welcome to the World Game. And Frank Lowy and so on, who played a big part in that, uh, you know, that project in 1977. See, these people are bringing a very different view of Australia, of Australia you know, internal borders of Australia Federation and particularly of Australia's place in the world. And I know from spending, you know, 15 years on air with Les and, and being really close personal friends that, um, you know, that view is different uh, to many Australians. And, you know, that's why they love the game of football so much is because it takes us outside of the country. It gives us a, a broader perspective. It allows us to follow leagues all around the world. It allows us to see... Australia as one part of this entire global fabric. I think that's really important. So we should be very proud, but also I think we we just take it as a, a natural step that football would be the sport that says, of course, we should be, uh, you know, taking a national approach. I think there's a couple of other issues that are worth um, discussing within the context of these two matches, uh, JD. Um, one is uh, Australia's uh, football's issues with Indigenous Australia, okay? Because we talk a lot about immigrants coming to the game and, you know, how they built uh, the, the Phillips National Soccer League and so on. And yet at the same time, we would have thought that, you know, all of these cultures coming from abroad together here throughout this period would have very naturally been able to then say, well, of course, the original inhabitants of this land are critically important to all of us and therefore to the game. And I, and I think it's, it's challenging and it's interesting that the game has never come to that at all. So it's remained, you know, in many ways, it's always had this great desire and thirst to be mainstream Australian rather than uh, you know, nurturing and respecting and protecting the history that we have of of immigration to the country. So football is the vehicle through which Australia now today sells ourselves as the most wondrous multicultural nation in the world to the world. And yet, you know, our our relationship with Indigenous Australia is, in my view, extremely problematic and we've never done enough. And I think it's a, it's a shocking part of our history. Yeah, I, I, we touch on that in a in a separate episode about mm. this intersection between uh, the First Nations people and football, and mm. it does it does reflect in many ways um, barriers that are put up to football joining the quote unquote mainstream, and many of the same challenges exist with First Nations people and their ability to quote unquote join mainstream mm. Australia. So it's a, it's a really complex and interesting mm. um, situation. What one of the things I'd sort of add to that. Yeah, the broader context around particularly the, the international aspect is, and this is a question without notice was, is me growing up, there's always been two really resonant spokespeople for the sort of dynamics that you're talking about. Mm. You know, this ability to not only appreciate the football that we have here, but place it in a global context. Okay, what does it mean for Australia as a nation to have an effective football culture or to play a certain way or to promote the game in a certain way to make this nation more effective. And the two people are Johnny Warren, the late Johnny Warren, and yourself. You know, you've always advocated this area with great zeal and great passion. In your mind, why do you think yourself and Johnny mm -hmm. were able to not stand, not stand above others is the right word, but stand on the shoulders of the community and actually uh, advocate for this with such passion? I used to speak to him uh, about it a little bit and our views were always very aligned and that is that we believed and believed that it's good for the country. That, you know, we th this whole mentality around immigration, this, this whole discussion that we're having right now, football's real gift to Australia is to take us to the world and give the gift that I've been given to every Australian. Okay? And... And that that's going to clearly going to improve us, improve our social cohesion, improve our social harmony, improve our understanding, improve our social inequality, improve this concept of multiculturalism. Because every Australian can uh, travel this journey with the Matildas and the Socceroos um, to meet with, to play with on the football field 
and to understand every culture in the world. And through that, that means our position in the world. And then that opens up all the discussions about who we are, you know, about all of our, all of our history of immigration and so on. So that's, that's a really fundamental uh, part that was uh, very important to both of us. It's one reason why I might just go to this other concept about other sports and, and, um, you know, that football has, has been fighting against this national consciousness and resistance um, for, you know, many, many decades. Look at what happened, for instance, with the various uh, athletes in the code. So uh, John Moriarty, for example, you know, when he was a, a part of the Stolen Generation, was in the boys' home in Adelaide, along with um, uh, Charlie Perkins and others, uh, Johnny Briscoe. And he, they went, they, you know, they were playing with a ball somewhere and an, a local AFL club come and said, listen, come and play with us guys and come and train. And they went over to train and they said, oh, no, 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 but you can't, you know, you can't get changed in our change room. There's the blackfellas change room over there. And to their eternal credit, Johnny and Charles said, well, we're not doing that. See you later. So off they go. And of course, the local Italian football club said, come here, come with us, because we're all the same. Like we are wogs, right? And we know in football that whilst my family came off the boats, I'm a wog. We're all wogs. Unless you're indigenous, we're all wogs. <laughs> okay. That's the beauty of it. And so he found a home in football perfectly naturally. Hakeem found a game to advocate for him perfectly naturally. I, I, a couple of years ago, I went down to Sutherland uh, in Sydney here to, to make an appearance and I ran into, a gentleman came up and he said, I'm Lenny Pascoe. Oh, oh wow. Speedster. I am? The speedster. Ball in with the Yorker. Beautifully bowled in, Pasco. You really deserve that wicket. This has been a tremendous last over from Len Pasco. Yorker after Yorker. And through Jeff Dujan, bowled for 13. The West Indies, 4 for 224. Pasco to holding. He's bowled Lean ball. Great bowling by Len Pasco. That's the end of Michael Holding. And so, with one ball to go, Len Pasco will be bowling to a new batsman. And I said, mate, you know what? My old man was a fantastic uh, first-class opening batsman. Right? And he traded a, a potential career for his three sons to let him play football and shuffle them all around the state. Uh, but, mate, he, could, he had a beautiful off-drive that you wouldn't believe, right? His son missed most of that, but <laughs> I used to just snick him into slips most of the time. But I could catch in slips, which was good. <laughs> anyway, he walked up and I told him this, and I said, you came up in a New South Wales select team, Shepherd Shield team one year, and you played against the best of all of the far north coast, and my old man opened the batting. He got 50 runs, and we were very proud of that. Anyway, he said, mate, I should have stayed with your sport, because he's Masso, of course, right? Yeah. Okay. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, but you played for the country. And, of course, he has well-known cases which even went to court around, you know, the racism that he allegedly uh, – but what he did say to me is I cop abuse both from um, other, other teams, from some teammates, and particularly from the crowd. And the Australian national cricket team crowd, the Aussies, used to just give it to me as the masso. Right, and he said, whereas in your game, and his, I think his father was on the board of Eugle, right here in Sydney, you know, a, a, a foundational, a historic uh, NSL and pre-NSL club, uh, Yugoslav club, and so he said, I was in there, I was playing, and I went and played cricket. He said, I wish I stayed with you. Why is because I would have felt at home. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd, that's a really good segue into I think the Frank Lowy story where. He's a person that's, you know, he, a figure that has a foot in each of these narrative threads. One is he was somebody who, you know, the, the drawbridge was pulled down to post-World War II when he could make a life for himself in Australia. During the first 10 years of my arrival to Australia, from 52 to 62, I got married. I had three children. And of course, uh, I have become the Joint Managing Director of the then Nana Westfield Development Corporation. But he was also at the heart of the formation of the NSL. And in many ways, his story is as engaging as there is, not only for the Australian nation, but within football. And that's one of the things I really love about that, his journey, is that his journey was 
both one of football and of becoming an Australian and using football to become Australian in many ways. And that then lever- that then allowed him to achieve the sort of, you know, success uh, and build the sort of empire that he did. And, and you touch on this in your, your chapter, mm. John, I'll just, uh, I'll just uh, read a reference here. So Lowy would revolutionize Australian football twice and change the way Australians would consume into the modern era through the, through the creation of Westfield, the retail property empire. Yeah, I thought you'd give me more, Dave. And some good, some good writing in there, mate. So for, for, I'll carry on. <laughs> no, but you know, on, with with Frank's story is, it's it's not as if they were done in silos. His success as an Australian mogul, as an Australian tycoon, was very much um, intertwined with his journey as a football administrator, if you like, or as somebody who found a home within the Harkoa team in the fifties and sixties. So his mm. his his ability to actually achieve what he did is anchored in football. Um, if you look at, there's some great anecdotes where people would come to Australia and ask about, okay, how, how, how do we, um, how do we do ABC? Well, just go to the club and there'll be someone there who'll fill in a form and they'll get it sorted for you. So it was this ability to actually start running a football club that could then be real, could then be leveraged into understanding how business and commerce work more generally in Australia. So the, the Lowy story is um, such, so at the heart, of um, why football, uh, such at the heart of, of football's uh, capacity to help people uh, succeed in this nation. And I'm glad with Hakeem, um, yeah, football was able to achieve that in, in vastly different circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I I um, was very fortunate to work alongside you, Foz. Actually, no one works alongside Foz. They're chasing, <laughs> they're, they're chasing you, you know. So I was, I was, um, you know, caught in, caught in the um, your coattails on that campaign. And the most, probably the most singular emotional moment of my life was Hakeem coming back through the airport doors. Refugee footballer Hakim Al-Arabi has been given a hero's welcome after he landed home in Melbourne. There were hugs and tears as he was reunited with friends following nearly three months detained in Thailand. Dougal Beatty was there. Through customs, returning home, the refugee who escaped the clutches of Bahrain. Hakeem Al-Arabi was embraced by loved ones after nearly three months in a Thai jail. Refugee footballer Hakeem Al-Arabi has arrived back in Melbourne to a hero's welcome after being released from jail in Thailand. He was freed after an international campaign led by a former Socceroo captain and an Australian of the Year. Nick McCallum reports. After 11 weeks in a squalid Thai jail... The 25-year-old refugee was overwhelmed by the response of friends, teammates and supporters he never met. We, we had that VIP room just outside the departure or the arrival terminal and for the first time seeing Hakeem walk through the door wearing his Pascoval top, greeting you, that, that moment to be able to witness that was something incredibly special. What, what do you remember of that that moment. I'm just going to interject for a second you, mm. with the other uh, Craig Foster reference in here. This is what he wrote about you, Foz. I don't think you've had the pleasure of reading the chapter first. So in John Didelitz's words on Craig Foster, he's deeply thoughtful, contemplative, and soaks in as much information as possible before reaching any decision. But once that decision is made, it's like a rump of meat in the mouth of an alligator. In <laughs> 2018, when he decided to take on Thailand... Bahrain, FIFA and the AFC, I wasn't sure whether he would be the meat or the alligator. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. Well, nor, nor was I, nor was any of us. And that was the real challenge of the campaign. You just don't know where it's going to end. And that's part of the fear of it, which drives you. Pressure is mounting on the government to release a football player who is being held on an extradition request from Bahrain. Hakim Al-Arabi was detained in November after he and his wife travelled to Bangkok for their honeymoon. The other issue we had, JD, as you're aware, is that we were so fearful, so worried about making a misstep. Mm. And so it was about, do we advocate, you know, loudly? Or, you know, is this all about private diplomacy? Please, please, 
The Prime Minister has written to his Thai counterpart expressing his shock at seeing the detained footballer Hakeem Al-Arabi in leg irons during a recent court appearance. Mr Al-Arabi is a refugee who lives in Melbourne but is being held in Bangkok at the request of the Bahrain government. A clearly frustrated Prime Minister has taken to giving his Thai counterpart practical advice. It is within the executive authority of the Thai government to actually enable him, under their law, to be returned to Australia. How are we going to be able to crack this and how are we not going to make it worse? Uh, and, you know, I took advice from, you know, constantly from a range of people, including former ministers, foreign ministers of Thailand, to that end, because that was, was uh, such a worry. Um, so the thing about uh, Frank Lowy is there's a theme in Australia, and we see this in asylum seekers, refugees, which he is, of course, right? And, um, uh, you know, uh, so many refugees, you know, from, from Hungary, like uh, Les and others, and is that there can be good and bad, and so Hakim, as I said before, could be characterised as a good one. And yet Australia's, you know, easily, too easily able to be put in a position where others are on the other side of the ledger. And that's something that I'm very passionate and committed towards changing to the extent that I can in Australian culture. And, and going back to the Lenny Pascoe is very similar to Frank Lowy. So Frank Lowy has a, had, and, and he came back and delivered in many ways, uh, had a huge responsibility to give back to football because football gave him so much because the Harkoa Club, which was so influential in his early growth as a business person, was very deeply embedded in football because that community is, is you know, one of our football family. And so football through a club like Harkoa provides contacts. It provides uh, a social influence. It provides power. It provides... Um, leverage to state government and elsewhere. And so through the game is a very powerful vehicle to build what became one of Australia's greatest, um, you know, business empires. Uh, but in, um, you know, that's where this Lenny Pascoe stories and others are so important is because in many other areas, I'm not being critical of other sports here, um, it's just that football is clearly very different culturally, is that they had to actually assimilate, you see. The point of Len Pascoe is that he couldn't, uh, you know, that he, he had to become very much Australianised to be accepted, okay? Whereas people through football in the Greek or Croatian or other communities, it could happen as a natural process and they could keep their names, they could keep their culture, uh, and football could amplify their work on the national scale without them having to, if you like, almost denounce their former cultural background. All right, we're going to throw it forward now. Um, Foz, I wanted to get your views on the role football can play moving forward through the border lens. In my view, one of the big problems that Australian football has is that we have never overcome this sensitivity to this cultural challenge, this cultural resistance that the game has always faced, uh, has conditioned the game uh, to be small, to have a small mentality, to um, not be proud of itself, to be uh, unproud of its history, to not tell its story well, to at times on a semi-regular basis to try and metamorphosize into something that Australians, this nebulous concept of mainstream, uh, are going to accept. And the game still suffers from that, in my view. I'll tell you why. It's because Hakim played football and, this, uh, and therefore was you know, reasonably straightforward for the game. And because of leadership of JD and the players, they intuitively were able to step forward and start the process of bringing, you know, all sport on board, right? Uh, however, um, you know, when it comes to other asylum seekers and refugees, the game is silent. And I find that staggering. 
And you saw recently that the Wallabies, you know, Australian Rugby Union had the anthem sung in part in Indigenous and part in Australian. You know, I, I raised that, I think, four years ago, mm. JD, when yep. I was the chair per, well, chairman of the PFA and 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 uh, you know, I recall that too, Foz. Yeah, it's like a really easy step for us. We have got John Moriarty. He's from Borroloola. The Borroloola Song Women are one of the most uh, uh, renowned uh, elder Aboriginal women uh, song group in the country. Like you know, and football won't do it. Uh, and you know, when we talk about uh, you know immigration now and the demonising uh, demonisation of the South Sudanese community by sections of the the popular. Uh, media. Uh, football doesn't say anything, uh, but they're our community. They play our game. You know, so at the same time as we've got Awe Mobile and Thomas Deng and these guys playing, we don't say anything when the uh, communities get attacked. That, I believe, is, is maybe not the final step, but that is the big step, in my view, that the game needs to take. When we really confidently and finally wear our own skin, we will speak up for all of these communities. And when we speak up for all these communities, we are going to change Australia for the better. Football is then going to be recognised for what it has done for this country because there is, I won't say no multiculturalism, but there is certainly not multicultural Australia today without football. We have to put that jacket on and live up to it, not just talk about it. So now we've got Football Federation Australia and, and they're really committed to telling some of these historic stories and they think that's the answer. It's not the answer. The answer is to wear our own skin and wearing it means speaking up for communities. It means advocating for refugees, right? You can't have a former chairman uh, of, a, of, the, of FFA who's, uh, you know, a Hungarian immigrant, Frank Lowy, and not talk, uh, uh, not speak up for other immigrants or other refugees. You can't love Les Murray as our greatest broadcaster and not speak up for refugees. You see, we don't, we're, we're too reluctant to take that step. And uh, we will be an extraordinary game and an extraordinary trigger to a better Australia when we inherit the responsibility we have to be who we are. Very powerful stuff, Foz. Um, JD, you've obviously touched on football showing incredible moments of that expansive thinking running against the, the, the default to borders and the power attached to enforcing those. Casting forward, how can football again be trailblazing? I learnt long ago, David, that I never follow Craig Foster. So I've done enough functions with Craig to know that I never speak after him because whatever I say can only pale into significance. Uh, but I'll Sorry, give it. Mate, I'll, I'll no, no, shoot on me, me first, mate. But what? I'll, look, I'll have a crack. And look, I think there's two aspects to this. Firstly, history is too often an anchor, and it should be a sword. And what I mean by that is our history as a game shouldn't be something that holds us back or something that we reflect on or some nostalgic exercise. We should harness what our history is to make the future more effective. And Foz spoke to that really eloquently earlier about the emerging communities we have in Australia now. Now, one of the reasons I selected grassroots games for this chapter was because the real movements, the real change to Australia's society have come from grassroots campaigns. We've had leadership punctuate, or we've had moments of punctuated enlightenment by leaders at different times. That's not the norm. That's the exception. But when grassroots communities have got behind an issue and advocated, that's when we've seen transformative change uh, within our community. The example of that is federation. The ability for a, a, a small community in Korowa to spearhead the federation of this nation. Um, with the Hakim campaign, that was entirely driven by a grassroots community. It had no institutional support beyond the PFA, and we, we supported that. And that's not unique. That's the way real change is made. So to Foz's point is if we have a vision for what Australia looks like, it needs to be something that is anchored in the grassroots community. And football is grassroots. That is who we are. We aren't we don't have, we are, you know, I like to say through this whole process, what I've, my view of football is that we are a movement. We're not a sport. We're not an industry. We're a movement. And we need to conduct ourselves that way. Foz, I'll let you have the last word. No, um, don't let him. Don't let him. <laughs> um, <laughs> football is unique. 
our history is unique in Australia uh, and we have a unique opportunity and a um, and certainly a unique uh, set of gifts that we offer Australia the island nation uh, we have contributed fundamentally to the social fabric that we cherish and of which so many Australians are proud today, but we can do so much more to improve it and to make this uh, a more extraordinary country. I would say more, more than that we can, we have a responsibility as a game. And for all of the fans listening, who pine over many decades for the sleeping giant to awaken. I can tell you how we can do it as a game, is just love who we are, accept the gifts that we bring to this country, bring them to life within Australian society, be courageous in standing up for every community, because that's what we are. We are the game that sees the world and can uh, put Australia in the appropriate place within it. Thanks for joining us on this Borders episode of the Football Belongs podcast. Don't forget to go to Optus Sport to read all of John Didelitz's chapters. We'll be back again soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.